Pushkin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being here. Today, I'm joined by the marathon woman herself, Catherine Switzer. Catherine is a trailblazing athlete, author, broadcaster, and public speaker. But before all the trailblazing, she was a 19-year-old college student at Syracuse University where she happened to fall in love with running. That same love is what brought her to the Boston Marathon on April 19th 1967. It would become a historic day in the women's rights movement, as Catherine became the first woman to register and run in the 26.2-mile race. There's a whole lot more to that day and the aftermath of Catherine's story. You'll hear about that in a minute. Switzer is now 74, looking back as she celebrates the 54-year anniversary of her race this month. In doing so, I want to make sure you know about Fearless 261, a global nonprofit co-founded by Switzer that uses running as a vehicle to empower and unite women through education programs and local women-only running clubs. If you'd like to learn more about their good work, visit www.261fearless.org. That's www.261fearless.org. Also, while you're listening to this, I'd urge you to do a Google search of Catherine Switzer. Then go to images. 
there are a handful of photographs taken from the race. You'll want to see those during our discussion. We've also included some of those images on our website at talkeasypond.com. And now, here's the Catherine Switzer story. Catherine Switzer, thank you very much for being here. Sam, I'm delighted to be here. Talk to you. It's a real joy to be talking with you. And there are so many places to start, but why don't we go back to the months leading up to your historic race at the Boston Marathon? You're 19 years old, in college. What were you up to? I was a student at Syracuse University studying journalism. I was studying journalism because I wanted to be a sports writer. I knew that there weren't going to be any sports for me, a woman. After playing a lot of sports in high school, I was really disappointed in this, but I felt if I could write about it, I would stay close to the thing I loved. And that's one of the greatest, I think, tools for success for anybody, you know, is to work in a job that is not like a job. It's, it's something you love and it's never like going to work. But it was there at Syracuse where I, I met, went out on the cross-country course with the men's cross-country team who were very welcoming to me. I couldn't run officially with them. But I did meet the university mailman, (laughs) a 50-year-old ancient guy, you know, I was 19, he was 50, who had run 15 Boston marathons. And he was the guy who took me under his wing and helped me learn to run and really told me these amazing stories about the Boston Marathon and inspired me to run and train for the race. What do you think that impulse is to say, it's something I wanted to write about, part of you wanted to document Ah, you know, that is really interesting. I actually started running a mile a day when I was 12 years old. I was inspired by my father who, who he saw a kid who needed a sense of empowerment. The mile a day made me feel really strong and powerful. And I, I made the field hockey team, and the basketball team and everything. But even then I was compelled to write about it and wrote for my high school newspaper. One, because women weren't getting any publicity. Girls are not getting any publicity. So I thought I'd write about my team. But also because... The idea of documenting something and writing your thoughts and your feelings about it, I wanted everybody to share in the exuberance of the movement, the sense of accomplishment, and I loved writing. And in fact, I started signing my name K.V. Switzer for two reasons. One, my dad had misspelled my name on my birth certificate, so I got tired of everybody misspelling it when they were trying to correct it, when they were miscorrecting it. (laughs) And also because I was reading J.D. Salinger and E.E. Cummings and T.S. Eliot. So K.V. Switzer was my sort of nom de plume. It stuck with me all these years. I've been signing my name that way for 62 years. At school, you meet a man named Arnie Briggs. He was the university mailman that happened to train with the track team at Syracuse. Of course, he immediately took a liking to you. Looking back now, why do you think he did? I think Arnie Briggs, being a mailman, you know, blue-collar worker, and of course in Syracuse, New York, where the snow and slush begins in September and doesn't end until May, and he's carrying mail through the snow and slush, and then he gets out and trains every afternoon with the men's cross-country team, he favors the underdog. Nobody took him seriously as a mailman, but one day in his life, April 19th, he ran the Boston Marathon, and he was a hero. His name was in the paper. People cheered for him. He told me these stories about Boston 
took me under his wing, seeing that I was a girl, the first girl. He said, we haven't had a girl in 30 years out here, he said. And he was proud of me for showing up and being timid a little, but not afraid. And he helped me by simply running and jogging with me every day and telling me stories about Boston. To me, he was like an Olympian god because he lived for something higher, some greater purpose. He believed so much in the wonderful joy and privilege of movement. So really, Arnie wasn't a father figure or a boyfriend figure or whatever. He's my buddy, but he shared this, this wealth of knowledge with me until one night when he really was negative, and that was a turning point in both of our lives. And it was in a blizzard one night in Syracuse when we were running 10 miles, and he was telling me another Boston Marathon story, and I was a cranky 19-year-old student, hadn't prepared for exams the next day, shouldn't have been out running. We almost got killed a couple of times by cars, couldn't see us. And I said, oh, let's quit talking about the damn Boston Marathon, Arnie, and run it. And he said, well, a woman can't possibly run 26.2 miles. And I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, we're running 10 miles in a blizzard. He said, 10 miles is not 26.2. And we argued. And like so many people, even those who are kind, he was just totally prejudiced against women's ultimate capability. And he said, no woman could possibly do it. And I told him, you know, that women throughout history had run marathons, not with much fanfare, but certainly had run. And, and then I told him about Roberta Gibb having run the Boston Marathon the year before, and he just exploded. He couldn't believe any woman had done it. Finally, he said, if any woman can, you can, and I, but you'd have to prove it to me. And if you'd prove it to me in practice, I'd take you to Boston. So, right? <laughs> I have a goal. I have a challenge. I have a coach. I have a buddy. Um, and then my focus began proving to him that I could cover 26.2 miles. So that was a turning point because when we did it, we did it. We actually ran 31 miles. I said, let's run another five miles, make sure we can absolutely do this. And he fainted at the end of the workout. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. So the turning point was, I knew I could do the Boston Marathon. I could complete this amazing event. Uh, and for him, he had a totally evangelistic uh, change of thinking about what women's capability was all about. At that turning point you're describing, did you think of yourself as an underdog? No, I thought of myself as unusual. What does that mean? Well, meaning unusual was that I think I thought I was ahead of my time. I knew that women's sports was going to happen, but other women didn't yet know that. Even the women's liberation movement in 1966, Betty Friedan had written her book, The Feminine Mystique. Gloria Steinem was out protesting equal pay, equal education. All of those things I supported, but I didn't quite even make the leap yet that women's sports was associated with that. I thought that somehow in terms of distance running, I was unusual, that I liked doing it and other women didn't like doing it. But I also knew that other women believed the myths associated with women's limitation. You know, and the myths were amazing. You know, you're going to get big legs, you're going to turn into a man, you're never going to be able to have children. They believed all these things and they, they were frightened by them. I was not frightened by them. I was challenged by them because I knew that that myth was nonsense because I came from an incredible pioneering stock. 1723, my ancestors arrived in the new America and homesteaded, and, and they were tough. And those women were amazing. So 26 miles is nothing. <laughs> when you would explain your enthusiasm about running to your friends, did you find their responses sort of vexing? Were they, were they confused by your enthusiasm for this thing? 
At high school, I found it vexing because they, they really believed those myths and would whisper them and say, you know, something bad is going to happen to you. And then when I got to college, you know, this more educated people and women, they said, that's yeah, cool. You know, whatever you want to do. It was the 60s. People still thought, you know, are you pushing yourself too far? Do you think anything is going to happen? But they weren't censorious. It would be kind of like uh, when I was at Syracuse, for instance, I mean, I lived with two artists and they were they were doing Jackson Pollock paintings and they were, you know, smoking their cigarettes and wearing their black turtleneck sweaters. I let them do their thing and they let me do my thing. And, and we kind of applauded each other for our individuality. Mm. I was very lucky on that score. So you do your thing and your thing is to run the Boston Marathon. Now, the day before the race... You get in a car with Arnie, Tom, who's your boyfriend at the time, and his friend John. When you arrive in Boston that night, you had only one real fear about running. You wrote, and I quote, The thing I worried about most was courage. Would I have the courage to keep running if it really hurt? If it got harder than I was used to? If Heartbreak Hill broke me? I was worried about... Maybe not having the courage if it got awful. Yeah, because I didn't want to disappoint myself. <laughs> the worst thing in the world is when you disappoint yourself. I didn't say, come on, Catherine, you know, you're great. You've done 31 miles in practice. Anything can happen. So in a marathon, you have to live with that. You have to know that that is the unexpected. In a way, that's also the fascination of the marathon. It's like mountain climbing. You know, if you're going to do an assault on Everest, sure, like a, a bazillion people have done it now. The reality is still anything can happen. There can be an avalanche, a change of wind, whatever. It's the same thing in a marathon. Anyway, do you have the guts to get through it? If you get hurt, can you carry on? And do you need to carry on? I mean, <laughs> that was my problem. I didn't want to have any reason to drop out and lose a sense of courage. Would you say that you're often critical of yourself? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I am really, I'm really hard on myself. I take myself apart all the time. I, I, we're going to hang up from this recording and I'm going to say, oh, why didn't you say that? Why didn't you say this? Yeah, terrible. <laughs> what do you think that is? I, I don't know. I think it is um, always a sense of needing to prove myself. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because my parents expected a lot. And I think they also made some mistakes. Like they started me in things too early. For instance, instead of going to play school in kindergarten, I went right into elementary school and I went in at age five. So I really didn't have a lot of experience with methods of learning and relating and socialization and all the things that are really important for kids. And so what happens is I always felt like I was behind. Eighth grade was high school in those days. There was no intermediate school. And so by eighth grade, I was 12, and I was sitting next to an 18-year-old in a high school class. So he was graduating from high school, getting married the next year, and becoming a grown-up person, <laughs> getting a job. And I was going home and playing with dolls. So you see the disconnect there um, in me trying to hang on to something that gave me a sense of self-worth without succumbing to the pressures in a big high school. 12-year-old girl surrounded by 1,500 other students, most of whom were, had at least reached puberty. <laughs> and and um, that's one reason why running was so important to me. You know, I'd run a mile a day, and I knew they hadn't run a mile a day. 
And so the mile a day gave me a victory under my belt nobody could take away from me. So that is why, for instance, I've been running for 63 years, because it's every day it gives me a sense of empowerment and destiny and fearlessness. And, uh, you know, I am determined to pass that on to every woman I know, because it's a really handy device. (laughs) You brought all of this and all of that determination into that race that morning, which actually started at noon that day, Wednesday, April 19th, 1967. And I want to sit with what you were thinking about as you and, and your team got there. I got to the starting line. Basically, I was thinking the same thing every other marathoner does. Only I had a little more confidence. I had run the distance in practice. I was worried about the weather. The weather was horrific. It was headwind, sleet, snow. I had my sweatsuit on, gloves, but I was disappointed. I wanted to be in a cute shorts and top because I wanted to show that a dishy woman could finish the Boston Marathon, look good. (laughs) Instead, I said, no, the important thing is to finish this race and stay warm and healthy. At that point, it was simply just finishing the race. I wasn't trying to do anything spectacular. Don't forget, it was a reward for me. I wasn't there for a political reason in the slightest. I was proud of being a woman, very proud of being a woman. But I wasn't there to say all women should run. Not then. In the lead up to it, it was about self-reward. Yes, definitely it was. But, But it all changed. How did it change? It changed when about a mile and a half into the race, the press truck came by and we're taking pictures and we were waving at the press truck. But alongside the press truck was the officials bus and on the officials bus was a, the race director, Jock Semple, feisty Scotsman, taking care of his race. He was the race director. He just couldn't stand the fact that a girl was in his race because he thought I was making a mockery of him because I was wearing bib numbers and he tried to get my numbers off. He jumped off the press bus, went after me, and tried to pull the bib numbers off my chest and my back and scream, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. He was just absolutely out of control. He was furious because he was protecting his baby, his race, and he thought I was making a joke of him. And my coach was screaming, leave her alone. She's okay. She's serious. I've trained her. And of course, what happened then is my boyfriend hit the official decked him, knocked him right out of the race. And Arnie said, run like hell and down the street we went. I was terrified. I tried to get away from him and I was just going, oh, oh. I also, as a young woman, okay, and and an obedient child, by the way, I was very obedient. I immediately felt like, what have I done wrong? This is a really important race. And I, up to this point, I was so honored to be there. I felt like a pilgrim, you know, going on some crusade. And I, and I suddenly realized, you know, what have I done to screw this up? And the press were just all over me and taking pictures. It was a huge, huge amount of pressure, embarrassment, shame. <laughs> all I wanted to do is get away from him. There was a split second at that moment where I thought, sh- should I step off the course? Should I step out of the race? I really wanted to go home to my mom, cover my face and cry. But I, I said, no, I can't do that. Because if I do that, everybody is going to say, I was just there to make a joke. I have to now prove that I am a serious athlete. And that's when I turned to my coach and I said, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to. And I often look at the picture and I look at my face. Okay, I don't look at Jock who's attacking me. I look at my face and I said, how did a 20-year-old girl make that decision? And I think it was because I had been running since I was 12 and I had this sense of empowerment And I knew what he was trying to do. He was trying to throw me out and make it so that I couldn't participate when I knew I could run. 
And that's when I thought, you know, everybody's going to believe women can't do this. The motto at this time for the um, beginning of the women's liberation movement was all these women are barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. That's why we don't let them into Harvard or law school or medical school. Women really can't hack it. We don't have women on our board because, you know, women are emotional and can't make the right decisions. We heard all of that stuff. But if you give people an opportunity, they will emerge. And that's when I suddenly realized, you know, they want me to drop out. Everybody on that press truck was yelling at me, when are you going to drop out? When are you going to drop out? They couldn't believe I was serious. <laughs> it was amazing. So that made me all the more determined. You know, just I said, I have to finish because nobody believes women can do it. And women themselves needed it. I knew that, you know, I used to be kind of angry at the women and saying, why don't they get it? Why aren't they here enjoying, you know, the freedom that running can give them? And suddenly at about mile 21 in the race, I said, holy Toledo, how can you possibly think that when they have never had the opportunity to experience something that challenges them, that gives them the chance to be bold? That also was a turning point in my thinking. I, I'd forgotten about the official by mile 21, by the way, because I feel it's not his fault. You know, he's just a product of his time. There are millions of guys like that. It's up to me to change their minds. I'm going to finish the race. Shortly thereafter, I think maybe two or three miles after, your boyfriend at the time, Tom, who is, as you said, an all-American athlete with aspirations to participate in the Olympics, he then starts attacking you in a verbal form. I know, yeah. What happened? He turned to me and he said, you're getting me in all kinds of trouble. And I said, why am I getting you in all kinds of trouble? And he said, because I hit an official. They're gonna read my number, look me up. They're gonna throw me out of the amateur athletic union. I'm not gonna make the Olympic team and it's all your fault. I should never have come to Boston. I said, I told you not to come to Boston. And he said, well, it's a good thing I did come to Boston, isn't it? And I said, no, it isn't. And he said, and besides that, you ruined my Olympic dream and you run too slow anyway. And he took off. <laughs> I was having a tough day. This to me, while I was reading your story, what I found so disheartening is that at every turn, it is always coming back to the fragility of men's egos. <laughs> but you know who didn't? Arnie Briggs, my coach, never made it about him. Never made it about him. And that's why I always talk about sometimes the simplest little people, a blue collar worker who just loves running, can give you all the wisdom in the world from the kindness of his heart. It's not about him. And I learned more from him than any professor I had at the university. You know, it was interesting. I, I read someplace online about my ex, Tom, and it said he went from hero to zero to hero. I mean, from, sorry, he went from zero to hero to zero. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to say that men have fragile egos. I'm just saying it's, it's the opportunity of experience. I know thousands and thousands of men who really want women to be successful, who are so supportive and so wonderful. And every day I see this scene changing. There are plenty of wonderful men. And the, the sooner we all can learn to really work together, strive together, we're going to be the best team imaginable. <laughs> I think you're the first person on this podcast to say men are wonderful. Well, I've had experience with men who are fabulous. <laughs> on the whole, yes. Even Jock Semple became my best friend. Now, I know I'm a very forgiving person, but I believe people can change. And if you give them the opportunity, they will always emerge. 
he came up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon six years later. It took him a while to, to come around <laughs> and planted a big kiss on my cheek. He never said he was sorry, but he turned me to a bank of TV cameras. And he said, come on, he was Scots. He said, come on, Les, let's get a bit of notoriety. That was as good as a thank you as I needed. Um, it was acceptance of us women. He was impressed. His notions changed and he became quite supportive of women's running. So people do change, absolutely. I went to see him a few hours before he died and people say, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, you know what? First of all, carrying a grudge is very burdensome. Forgiveness is huge. And I also said, how can you not love somebody who created the worst thing in your life, which became the best thing in your life? That incident became the best thing in my life. It changed everything for women. And he also gave us one of the best photos, not only of the women's rights movement, but he gave us one of the best photos of the civil rights movement. And he, he not only inspired me to really finish that marathon, he inspired millions of women to get empowered through running because that photo is just so galvanizing and also it spurred my actions in, in the race. It spurred your actions to finish the race, but it also spurred your actions after the race. What did that newfound purpose look like at age 20? I felt almost mature, if you see what I mean. I, I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl and I finished as a girl, grown woman. I had kind of a life plan ahead of me. Um, and at 20, I felt when I crossed the finish line, I felt better than I did at any other point in the race, even the beginning, because now I felt I've accomplished that. We can put that aside. Now there's this bigger picture up there. And it opened up a burden of responsibilities, huge ones, I felt. But I thought, okay, well, you start small and you'll just chip away at it. That was my attitude. I, I felt quite mature, but I also felt kind of blessed to have a life plan and a goal. How did you go about changing people's minds? Well, you know, that's not easy <laughs> because they were, the hate mail that came in was pretty profound. Um, but also I got a lot of fan mail. So I threw the hate mail away and, and concentrated on the fan mail. My father always used to say, the good ones outweigh the bad ones. <laughs> and the best way to change is not necessarily to convince the people that who are around you who are giving you a hard time, but to pass it on and convince the next, next group. So basically what I, I began doing is organizing in a small way. And in my own town in Syracuse, it, it grew into a very big club. I learned sponsorship, you know, marketing. Then I went to the Munich Olympics, worked as a journalist there. We had my eyes really, really opened. It's politics and it's sponsorship. And I realized that, that the players in those games were, were the biggest ones were commercial sponsors. And if I could get a commercial sponsorship to back me and my plan to create a, a series of women's events, we could maybe even get the women's marathon in the Olympic Games. And of course, people thought I was a crazy person to be thinking about this. But I wrote this proposal to Avon Cosmetics. They said, we'll probably never do anything with running, <laughs> but we'll, we'd love the way you think. And so they hired me. And basically, I begged them to do a race and begged them then to do a pilot series. And these were so successful that my whole proposal got launched. And eventually, you know, five years later, we had secured the vote to get the Women's Marathon in the Olympic Games because we had programs in 27 countries and five continents which exceeded the Olympic requirement of 23 countries and four continents. So it was really, really quite amazing. The big winners in this were women. People always said that they wouldn't come, they couldn't do it. And if you build it, they'll come. And you make it inviting and welcoming and treat people well. They came in their thousands. All these federations told me that it wasn't gonna be successful. I mean, I went to 27 federations 
New Zealand, US, Canada, and the UK were the only ones who gave me the time of day. The rest said it'll never be successful, but I know you're going to go ahead and organize this event. And I did. And they came in their thousands. So we had the data, the statistics to convince the International Olympic Committee to get the women's marathon in the Olympic Games. When the first woman came into the Olympic Stadium, to me, it was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social, cultural, and intellectual acceptance. This was about a physical acceptance. See, the marathon event, 26.2 miles, 42.2 kilometers, is the longest event in the Olympic Games for men or for women running event. And here were women doing it also. So it was not only leveling the playing field, but it was telling the 2.2 billion people who watched it on television that women can do something you never believed they could do before. Because everybody in every country knows how far 42.2 kilometers is or 26.2 miles. Either you've walked it or biked it or driven a car or ridden a donkey over the distance. And they know it's a long way. <laughs> so it really resonated. And that's why that that moment was so profoundly important. It's worth noting that in 1981, you convince the Olympic Committee to add women's marathon to the 84 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. But I want to try to understand something or maybe give some context to something, which is. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, it's Steve Covino from Covino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. You're dealing with what I assume to be a lot of men in power to get that literally through the finish line. And I wonder, as a woman in that time, 
And as a human being trying to get anything done, how did you do that? As my husband says, you cannot ignore 10,000 women running through the streets of Rio de Janeiro in shorts. <laughs> when people say women aren't going to run and there are 10,000 of them in the street, you can see that they're running. The facts spoke for themselves. The ebullience spoke for itself. But finally, what we had to do, the hard part, was overcoming the social and huge mythological prejudice that men had about women, which was weakness, passivity, danger that they would turn into a man and that their uteruses would fall out and they'd never be able to have children. So we had to overcome that medical thing, which was not easy. But thank God for doctors like Dr. David Martin, now deceased, unfortunately, because he's such a champion for this cause. And the American College of Sports Medicine got behind this research and actually did the determination in finding that women have inherent capacity and endurance and stamina, as well as flexibility and balance. So something like including the marathon is much less dangerous for them than shot putting, because we don't have huge speed, power and strength compared to men. And so that was a real, real turning point. And it's interesting also now, Sam, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but it's changing the face of sports right now because women's endurance in sports is phenomenal. And we're seeing women winning ultra races, six-day races, 100-mile races, 24-hour runs. They're winning outright. And that's going to change the way sports looks as well because women play a different game. I hate to be um, sort of pessimistic about this, but I want to go to something which is that there is still a prejudice that still exists against women athletes because just this last month during the annual March Madness tournament, women basketball players spoke up about the discrepancies in facilities between men and women players. The New York Times reports, officials apologized for providing inadequate facilities for the women's basketball players, but later acknowledged they were also receiving cheaper, less sensitive coronavirus tests. I know it is, it is absolutely incredible. And it seems that sports is the final bastion. And I don't know why. I think it's because people think we play a lesser game. It's less interesting. We are less powerful. We're a small imitation of what men are. When I'm saying we're completely different from men <laughs> and our game is as good as your game. It doesn't make you a better athlete or me a better athlete. It makes us very interesting. Women's tennis and men's tennis is different. Men's soccer, women's soccer is a different. Basketball, running, it's all there. And I think also the things that make us unique and different, we can bring to a lot of other places. We're finding out in business, for instance, ha-ha, people are finding, you're looking at the stats and say, golly, isn't it interesting? Companies that are more diverse and not gender biased, are more egalitarian, are better businesses. They're doing better. They're making more money. No kidding. <laughs> Because we, we all have a different point of view and we all have different attributes. But anyway, sports is the final bastion. And there, there's still this bias, you know, that women are ruled by their biology, which until about 50 years ago, we were, you know, we, we didn't have birth control. You know, we didn't have the facilities that we have now. It's changing and the future is going to be very interesting. But does that reality a half a century removed from the start of your fight, does that bother you? It bothers me, but you got to understand, you know, I'm, I'm a cockeyed optimist. I am always delighted when we make progress. And I'm looking at a bigger picture, Sam, you know. I applaud the elite women. I applaud professionalism. They are pushing the barrier back. They're opening the doors. They're changing. They're getting the publicity. I'm actually worried about those millions and millions and millions of women 
who are, are, live in a fearful situation. You know, you think, well, oh, she's under a burqa in Afghanistan. It doesn't count. I'm talking about your next door neighbor. You know, I'm talking about somebody who doesn't have the opportunity. You don't know what her domestic relationship is. You don't know what her fears are. Woman who is afraid to finish an education or, or take a strong stand in raising her kids or, or leave a bad relationship or ask for a raise at work. That's the woman I am worried about. I'm worried about the women in the Mideast. I'm worried about the women in, in the southern parts of, of South, Afri- uh, South America and Africa because they have no opportunities for an education, and when you're totally uneducated, uneducated and you're in an ignorant, biased situation, constrained by social, cultural, religious norms, all of which are outdated and frightening, and poverty, what kind of hope do you have? So, you know, that's why, you know, we formed 261 Fearless. It's easy and it's simple and it's cheap to put one foot in front of the other and it's empowering and it, and it just gives you that little crack of light to say, hey, I feel really good about myself. I can do that. I just ran a kilometer. I am fearless. <laughs> I can change other aspects of my life. You've called yourself an optimist throughout this conversation. And I want to revisit a quote you brought up. This is from Will Cloney, the race director at the time for the Boston Marathon. Um, immediately after the race, there was a piece in the New York Times, April 23rd, 1967. He said in the Times, women can't run in the marathon because the rules forbid it. Unless we have rules, society will be in chaos. I don't make the rules, but I carry them out. We have no place in the marathon for any unauthorized person, even a man. If that girl were my daughter, I would spank her. My mother went crazy, and she read that. Absolutely berserk. And I think Will Cloney, he and I became friends, by the way, and I think he went to his grave regretting that he ever said that, <laughs> as well he should. Of course, there were no rules written about this. He said, we have, we have rules in the marathon. I went through the rule book and I went through the entry form. There was nothing about gender. Am I pushing a point? Hey, I'm following the rules. The rules say you have to enter the race and you pay your $2 entry fee. You get your travel permits and you get your medical certificate. And I had all those things. And they still disqualified me and expelled me from the Federation because I didn't follow the rules. When I said that, they said, you should have known better. <laughs> but at age 20, how did that make you feel? After the race, I was very bold. I felt like a grown woman. I felt like I had matured. I had known, I knew a lot. I had a big road ahead of me. I had a lot to overcome. And you know what? I felt ready for the challenge. I had a lot to do. I had to still graduate from university and, you know, get married and put my husband through grad school and everything. But somehow during all that time, training my brains out and working two jobs and putting him through grad school and working on my master's degree at night, you know, you wonder how you did these things. How did you do that? Well, I didn't sleep. (laughs) I'm paying the price now. I'm tired all the time. (laughs) But I'm always in a good mood. Don't worry. I actually am a a long-term gratifier. That's the other thing. That means I'm willing to be very patient to get the reward. I don't need the chocolate now. I am willing to walk 20 miles and then get my chocolate, okay? And if it takes a long time to make the process happen, I'm going to do it. And I'm actually going to do it the right way. Believe it or not, people think I'm such a rabble rouser that I go into Boston and I bashed my way through. I didn't do that. I followed the rules. So afterwards, I was suspended, uh, expelled, actually, from the Federation, Athletic Federation. So I worked my way back into the Federation. I started organizing a club, and then I took a position in the Federation. 
as a chairman, a chairperson of women's long distance running for upstate New York. You know what? Get into the system, pay your dues, make it work, and change the system. There's lots of ways of, instead of thinking you have to break the hurdle, the hurdle in front of you, you can go around it, which I often do, takes a longer time, or you can get in the system and, and change it from inside. I did both of those things. After an event like this, did it force you to renegotiate your relationships with men at all? You know what? I was lucky. And I, I told you this in the earlier part of our interview. I was really lucky that I was dealing with men runners. They're very, very uh, understanding, welcoming. Even the guys I outran. I remember when I ran my best time in Boston, a 251, which was damn good. It was actually third best in the U.S. and sixth in the world for a woman. And I was passing these guys coming into the home stretch, and they were hanging on me as hard as they could to beat me. And when we came across the finish line, they, we all fell in hugs to each other. And the guy said, you know what, babe, you really deserve that. Obviously, you have trained your brains out to run that kind of time. And it was true. They were appreciative. So I had those kinds of guys. The harder thing was in my marriage, for instance. You know, I was dealing with a guy who was really very conservative when it came to religion and to women, which hadn't revealed themselves when we were dating. <laughs> but suddenly when we were married, they revealed themselves. And I never second-guessed my faith or my standing as a woman, but it was really difficult to be put down a lot. Needless to say, the marriage didn't last, and I learned a lot from it. But ever hopeful, I, I married again and eventually found the right guy. <laughs> You're such a, as you call yourself, a cockeyed optimist that I'm curious, what does difficulty look like to you? What does it feel like in your bones? See, difficulty to me is something that can't be solved. Difficulty is when my mother was dying of cancer. I couldn't save her. That was heartbreaking. Difficulty was my second marriage when I, my husband wound up being an alcoholic and refused to do anything about it. That is difficulty because I couldn't save him no matter what I did. And I gave it nine years. And finally, as they say, you know, save yourself. At a certain point, you, you've got to just check out because I had bigger things I had to do. I had a lot of women who were counting on me. And I felt that that was more important than trying to save somebody who didn't want to save themselves. And it's a hard decision. It didn't mean you don't, don't love these people, but you got to move on. Are you good at moving on? No, I'm a real lingerer. I work the problem every way it can be worked until I know it's hopeless. As I say, you know, I knew that he was an alcoholic after two years. I gave it nine years. That's a long time in your life. Because you believe there's some part of you that has the key to unlock them, to fix it. Absolutely. I know that nobody is as tireless as I am. And so I knew that I could fix it somehow if I only did this if I only did that. And so I tried all the options and finally I was out of options. So that's what difficulty is. I wonder how this quote I have here for you fits in because in that same Times article that I mentioned, they called you up. You take this call in your Syracuse dorm room and they ask you about running and, and, and why do you want to run and why a marathon? And you spoke of training, of playing basketball and hockey and all these running sports as, as sort of a precursor to running. But then you said something I really liked that I think kind of ties into what we're talking about. You said, there's a lot of feeling in living. I'm not a masochist, but when you experience pain, you experience living. I like the feeling of feeling alive. 
I feel strong. All there. That was a pretty good quote, wasn't it? <laughs> I got to say, you arrived at that at 20? Well, once I was asked the same question, I think, by the New York Times. And I, it was Frank Litsky. And I said, well, I run because it makes me feel sensuous. So that made the headline. And he said, my God, he said, I've never had a quote like that. <laughs> it is. Running is more than running. I mean, it's, it's both visceral and it's transformative. And your mind goes into a completely different zone. It's wonderful. I love the feeling of moving with nature. I love the feeling of being on ground. You know, some people love water, for instance. I love the ground. I feel like I'm a part of it. That makes me feel grounded. <laughs> I love being part of the leaves and the grass and the sun. It's as, as close to God as you can come. My mother ran nine Chicago marathons. She qualified for Boston three times. Good for her. And I asked her before talking to you, what does running do for you? And she said, when I run, it's like my body is not my body anymore. My body is moving, but my spirit is elsewhere. It's like a moving meditation. And I wondered, at 74, what does running do for you? What has it done for you? Oh, Sam, it's the same thing as you just quoted from your mother. And I've been running for 63 years. So every day it's that. It's the moving meditation. Certainly if you're injured or you're tired or not well or something like that, it's harder because you're very aware of the effort that you have to put forward. But basically within 10 minutes, I'm usually away with the fairies, lost. Mind is in floating. It is my time to sort out my life and everything else. I, people always ask me, what, what is running giving you? And I say, it's given me my career and my job and my husband, the great love of my life. And it has given me friends and family and my religion. But most of all, it's given me me. It's given me myself. I get in touch with myself. Sometimes, you know, we get so busy, we forget ourselves. And it gives me a chance to talk about myself to myself. And do you like yourself? Oh, I do. Yeah, I think I'm a nice person. Um, but I get mad at myself for being disorganized and scattered and overcommitted, not focusing always on two or three really important things, you know, like being worried about having a messy closet when I should be writing a book. <laughs> Here's a really beautiful example. I was cleaning. I decided I would only do like an hour a day on the closet and drawers. Okay. So I opened up some drawers and I found in the back of a drawer, a Ziploc bag full of letters and they were unopened letters and they were letters from 2017. I received hundreds and hundreds of letters, people congratulating me on running the Boston Marathon again 50 years after I first did it for my 50th anniversary, which in fact was the happiest day of my life. And we'll talk about that, all right? I didn't have time to answer all these letters, so I just gathered them up and I put them in bags and I put them down and I thought, okay, I'll answer these, I'll look at these later. Well, now suddenly with lockdown, I'm going through this stuff and there are letters here amazing letters from people. I'm going to try to answer them, but you know, you do feel overwhelmed. You don't even know if they're alive anymore. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, can I tell you about that moment, about that being the happiest day of my life? Of course. So imagine this. I stayed in shape almost all my life. You know, I, I went through a phase of being a very, very good athlete when I had the chance to organize the w women's marathon into the Olympics and do that program that was nonstop. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to compete anymore successfully because I didn't have the time to train. A marathon takes a lot of time. So I put it away and I decided, okay, I'm going to, I've always wanted to be a jogger. I've always wanted to just stay in shape and enjoy running and not have the pressure of competing anyway. And so for 32 years, I'd pin on a bib, I'd run races, etc. but I wouldn't do a marathon. 
And then I realized I was missing out. I had FOMO, serious FOMO. Um, and older women who were running marathons. And I said, I wonder if I could get it back and trained up. And I did get it back. And I ran a really tough mountain race here in New Zealand. So I decided, hey, listen, Catherine, you stay in shape. You can actually run the Boston Marathon again in 2017, which would be the 50th anniversary of 1967. It would be great testimony to keeping fit your whole life. Also, nobody had done it. No woman had done a marathon 50 years after she first did. Now, that doesn't make me great. It only shows how few women ran 50 years ago. But I thought it was an important benchmark if I could do it. I was extremely nervous. I trained my brains out, lost a lot of weight, was ready to go. And it was spectacular. It was spectacular. I had 125 women who joined Team 261 Fearless, raised enough money to take the nonprofit global. So we are now in 12 countries because of them. I was surrounded by them, impassioned, all wearing this shirt I have on now, 261 Boston, see? And all along the route, people were holding signs saying, 261, go for it, 261, go women, go Catherine, go equality, women's equality. Thousands of people knew the story. And as I was coming down the finish line, I mean, I stopped 13 times. I hugged every kid along the route, did eight interviews. When I looked at my watch, I said, my God, I'm only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. It was really fabulous. But the amazing thing is, is I was just kind of made that uh, uh, right on Hereford and the left on Boylston coming down the home stretch. And I, I thought, you know what it felt like to be the only woman wearing a bib in 1967, a few jeering spectators, irascible journalists. And here everybody was screaming and cheering. And I was surrounded by 13,500 women wearing bibs. And the race was effectively 50-50. 49% of the field were women who had qualified to run. And at the finish line, Joanne Flaminio was waiting for me, holding a medal. She was the first woman president of the Boston Athletic Association in 135 years. And alongside her, my husband, the love of my life, you know, I've always had this romantic fantasy that you come across the finish line in victory and you throw your arms around your lover and you brace madly and sweatily. And, <laughs> and we did on network television. So it was truly a, a, the happiest moment in my life because it came together physically. I was so grateful for my health with everybody understanding how important the moment was of uh, women's equality in Boston at last. It was, it was a terrific, terrific day. It was uh, the only time in my life I've looked up and said, okay, you can take me now. I'm ready to go. <laughs> it's like a scene in a movie. It is a scene in a movie. <laughs> it will be a scene in a movie. And when you are at the end of this race and you feel in yourself the 50-year arc of your story and stories you inspired, I wonder... You described yourself as someone who always feels like I'm behind. At that moment, did you think, I'm caught up now? I did feel that. That's a wonderful thing to remember. I always had felt I was behind. And I think that's exactly what I felt. I said, okay, I've caught up now. I don't have anything more I really have to prove. There's a lot more to do, but I don't have to prove anything. Catherine Switzer, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here.
And that's our show. Special thanks today to Laura Beachy and, of course, Catherine Switzer. To learn more about her and her work, visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And of course, we are a listener-supported program. If you'd like to get behind the work we do here each and every week, visit patreon.com slash talkeasy. That's patreon.com slash talkeasy. Every patron, every subscription, every donation, no matter the size, helps us continue doing the work we do here. As always, our show is made possible by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editors are Kevin Kaur and Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Grace Perkins, Jilly Harold, and Patrice Lee. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back Sunday with musician Kevin Abstract. Until then, stay safe and so long. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you catch season three of This Is Digital? Season three of This Is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of J.D. Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on season three of This Is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.